Emily Dickinson is one of my uh, favorite poets. Uh, she was, uh, in many ways, a very strange uh, woman, a recluse who uh, lived all of her life pretty much in her home, never went very far from her uh, house, and yet wrote with remarkable honesty and insight. Uh, the little poem that you have on the front of your uh, bulletin is one that she penned. It's actually, a, this is just a segment from a much longer poem, A Little East of Jordan, Evangelists Record. A gymnast and an angel did wrestle long and hard. And then she goes on to talk about the fact that this gymnast worsted God. That is, he got the best of, of God. Now, we want to talk about that occasion, and our text this morning is Genesis 32, and I would like to read just a portion of it. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He got them safely across the brook, along with all his possessions. But Jacob stayed behind by himself, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't get the best of Jacob as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. The man said, let me go. It's daybreak. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. The man said, what is your name? He answered, Jacob. The man said, no longer, your name is no longer Jacob. From now it's Israel, one who has, a power, who has power with God. You've wrestled with God and you've won. Jacob asked, and what is your name? The man said, why do you want to know my name? And right then and there he blessed him. Jacob named the place Peniel, God's face, because he said, I have seen God face to face and he has saved me. The sun came up as he left Peniel, and Jacob was limping because of his hip. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been following the story of two men, these twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. They're two very different men. But Esau, we would probably describe here in, 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 in uh, Idaho as a good old boy. Uh, he was a rugged outdoorsman. He was a skilled hunter. He was amiable, generous, quick to forgive, good-natured. He was the kind of man that you love to hunt and to fish and to hang with. But he was a profane man. The New Testament book of Hebrews uses that term to describe him. It means a man without any religion. He had no spiritual life. He had no spiritual center. He was a materialist. He had no time for God and no use for his plan to bring salvation to the world. That was Esau. Jacob was the precise opposite. He was not a good man. He was born gripping his brother's heel, holding him back, trying to get ahead, as you know. Isaac, his father, and what I think is just a moment of good humor, named him Healer, Little Healer. But it's the word that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 17 when he says, the heart is twisted above all things and desperately wicked. Jacob hustled his way, his way through life, wheeling, dealing, 
trying to trip others up to get ahead. He was devious, manipulative, duplicitous. He was a liar. He was a swindler. He was a thief. He was the Bernie Murdoff of his generation. Uh, Dante in his Inferno put extortioners and swindlers in the lowest circle of hell. There's something especially despicable about someone who would rip off his own family and friends. But that was Jacob. Yet the odd thing about Jacob is that he belonged to God. He was a believing man. And here we see two faces of this man. He wanted God's blessing, but he wanted his own way. It was a kind of a push-pull relationship. God was pulling him into his presence. Jacob was pushing him away. His life was characterized by ambivalence. And in chapter 32, we come to the great crisis that turned his life upside down, or more properly, turned it right side up. This was the critical day in Jacob's existence. As Jesus said, you never know what a day may bring forth. Jacob had turned his back on Laban, his uncle. He had cheated him. He had, uh, his wife at least, had uh, robbed uh, Laban of the household gods, the little teraphim, the little golden gods that were kept in the house. And he was making his way now across the highlands of Syria, what today is Jordan, down the trade route alongside the great gorge through which the river Jabbok flows. Laban was behind. He had burned his bridges there. Esau was before. Before he could go into the land of Canaan to claim his inheritance, he had to get around his brother Esau, who had sworn to kill him the last time he had seen him. As you know, he stole his father's, his brother's inheritance and his birthright. Now, uh, chapter 32 records one 24-hour period. There are three events that day corresponding to morning, afternoon, and night. First in the morning, Genesis 32, 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp, and he called the name of the place Mahanaim. It's a Hebrew word that means two camps. There's something very striking and simple and straightforward about that statement. God showed up with his army. He has an army, you know, that's why he's called the Lord of hosts. And Jacob saw them. They were there all the time. They'd accompanied Jacob throughout the 24 years from the time he left Bethel. Well, he went to Haran, and then as now this particular day, God's army had accompanied him, but now God opens his eyes so that he could see them. Innumerable angels, more angels than he could count. Now, that's true for us, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, the air is crammed with God and his angels. We can't see them, but they're there. This auditorium is filled with them. As Hamlet said to his friend Horatio, who was a student at Wittenberg and a thoroughgoing rationalist, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt in your philosophies. There's more of our life than we see and know. And one of the things that we don't see, but we know exist, are angels. We can't see them, but they're all around us, gazillions of them. 
Hebrews says they are ministering spirits sent to those who are the heirs of salvation to protect them. Uh, Julia, my granddaughter, when she was just a little bitty thing, said to her nana, uh, apropos of my driving, I think, uh, Papa does not have a guardian angel. He has a team of angels. <laughs> she was a very good uh, theologian. And now when I think of angels, don't, don't think of chubby cherubs, the kind that artists drew during the medieval period. Think of uh, these men and women over in Afghan, Afghanistan in their battle gear. They're warriors, great warriors. And they surround us for our protection. Now there are two equal and opposite errors. One is to think nothing of angels, and the other is to be preoccupied with them. The Bible takes the middle view, which is simply that they're there. We don't know much about them, but they're there for our protection. Psalm 34 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Remember after Jesus' temptation, when he was in the wilderness, angels came and ministered to him. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the time when Elisha found himself in a little city called Dothan down in southern Palestine. Uh, Israel was at war with Syria. Elisha had been tipping off the uh, king of uh, Israel about the whereabouts of the Syrian army so that they could avoid being ambushed. And the Syrian king decided he had to take Elisha out. And so he surrounded this little city uh, archaeologists have excavated there. It's just a little dinky town with a mud wall. It's not a defensive center at all. And uh, so the king of Syria surrounded uh, that little city. If it were today, there'd be Abram's ta Abram tanks and uh, RPGs and all sorts of things out there aimed at the city. And uh, the servant looks over the walls and he panics and he comes back to uh, Elisha, and he, and, he, and, he, and he tells him, you know, there's an innumerable army outside. And Elisha says, well, there's more of us than there are of them. And he opens his eyes, and the servant saw the angels of the Lord surrounding them. God is nigh, surrounding us with rings of fire. So that was comfort to Jacob, a reminder of God's goodness, a reminder that he was safe, he was in God's protection. And then in the afternoon, he received report of Esau's march. He was marching to meet him with 400 armed men. This was a true crisis, and Jacob panics, and he begins to pray, which is exactly what we ought to do in a time of stress and crisis. McDon George McDonald said, that for God's children, the natural way is straight to the Father's knee. There's a story that made the rounds of my family. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I was told numerous times when I was a little child, about two or three years old, I was sitting in the kitchen, and my mother was preparing breakfast, and the bacon caught on fire, and there were flames shooting up out of the skillet, and I began to cry, and I shouted, I wish it was time to pray. Uh, well, I just want to assure you that any crisis time is a time to pray. And that's exactly what, what Jacob did. There are no atheists in foxholes or any other holes that we dig for ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then Jacob prayed, 
God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, God who told me, go back to your parents' homeland and I'll treat you well. I don't deserve all the love and loyalty you've shown me. When I left here and crossed Jordan, I only had the clothes on my back and now look at me. Two camps. Save me, please, from the violence of my brother, my angry brother. I'm afraid he'll come and attack all of us, me, the mothers, and the little children. You yourself said, I'll treat you well. I'll make your descendants like the sands of the sea, far too many to count. I wish we had time to dwell on this prayer. There's much to be learned from it. I simply want to make two brief comments. Here we have an insight into Jacob's heart when he says, I don't deserve all the love and loyalty you've shown to me. He uses that wonderful Hebrew word, keset, that's used very infrequently in the Old Testament and mostly for God's love. It's used with reference to his loyal and faithful love. It endures uh, forever. And uh, Jacob, literally what Jacob said, I am unworthy of less than the least of your love. He sees himself as he really is. And that's the kind of thing that draws out God's heart. Isaiah, speaking for God, said, The earth is my throne and the heaven is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build unto me and where is the place of my rest? Because all those things my hand have, been, have made and all those things have been, said the Lord. In other words, he's totally unimpressed by what we as human beings do. But what impresses him? To this man, this woman will I look. Even to him it is poor and of a contrite spirit in whose heart trembles at my word. So Jacob begins with contrition and confession. I am unworthy of your love. And then he reminds God of his promise. You said, he reminds God twice, you said that you'd protect me and bring me back to this place, and that my my descendants uh, would uh, would number more than uh, than the stars. You promise, like a little boy, whose father promises him that on Saturday they're going to the zoo. So at five o'clock on Saturday morning, the little boy runs into the room, jumps on his dad's chest, starts to pound on him, and says, "Dad, it's Saturday. You promised. You said." And that's the kind of thing we can do in prayer. We need to be careful to be sure God actually said that, but we can ask God to fulfill his promises when and as he determines. But then good old Jacob, like me and others, panics and reverts to his own way of getting things done. He tries to pull another con on Esau. I'm not going to spend time on that, but he divides his flocks and his herds, and he sends them by units in order to try to appease his brother. Instead of waiting on God to work out the, the problem, he begins to manipulate and to try to work out things on his own. Again, Jacob's ambivalence, wanting God, but wanting his own way. He is what James would describe as a two-souled man who's unstable in all, all of his ways. Um, John Bunyan describes the same person in the Pilgrim's Progress as Mr. Facing Both Ways. Eyes on the Lord, eyes on something else. A two-souled man. And James says that's a very unstable person. Uh, often frenetic, unhappy, 
uh, restless, fretful, anxious, frustrated. And then in the evening we had the, th the, the third event of this day. Jacob moves his wife and children across the river. It's now midnight, the witching hour, time when our reserves, our, our resources are down. He was tired. He'd been up. It'd been a long day. Jacob was in great fear and distress. He knew at any moment Esau might leap out of the darkness and overwhelm him. He's down in the Jabbok. The Jabbok is a, is a uh, canyon. It's very much uh, like the canyons we have out in the Hawaii Desert. When I was a, a much younger man, I used to hike out into the desert uh, alone. I don't do that anymore, but I, I love the, the silence, the solitude, the quietness of that place. And I hiked down into Bruno Canyon and Little Jack's Creek and Big Jack's Creek and some of the other uh, of those uh, gorges out in the desert. It's beautiful, beautiful country. But I have to tell you this, as my granddaughters used to say, there's something about those canyons, particularly in the evening, that creeps you out. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's just that they're so mammoth. And it is so quiet, and you're so small that, that you're, you're awed. And I think that's what Jacob felt. He was, he was shaken and frightened, and suddenly in that dark, frightening place, a man leaped out of the night and threw his arms around him and threw him to the ground, and they began to wrestle, a wrestling match that continued all night until daybreak. Uh, the Hebrew word for wrestling here is an interesting word. It, it occurs only here, and it's derived from a word, uh, the word dust. This was a dust-up. This was a WWF smackdown. Uh, you know, I think of these Western melodramas where the hero and the villain show up at the same time in the tavern, and then they decide to go outside and, and duke it out, settle it with their fists. And they roll around the ground, you know, and they kick and bite and gouge and no Marcus of Queensberry rules. It's like a cage fight. And I, and I think that's what this was like. They were rolling around in the dust, bloodying one another. And when dawn approached and the man saw that Jacob would not surrender, he rinsed his hip out of joint. You ever have a joint out of, out of joint? It is so unbelievably, exquisitely painful. And that's what happened to Jacob. And he was in such pain and so exhausted, he couldn't go on. He could only clench. And he threw his arms around the man and held on. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man said, what is your name? Odd thing to say at this point. <clears throat> now, there are two, two interrogatives in Hebrew with which you could ask that question. One is simply for identification. The other means what is the meaning of your name? For example, if the former word is, former interrogative is used, what is your name? I would say David. If you use the, the second uh, Hebrew word, me is the word, uh, I would say beloved because that's what the Hebrew name David means, beloved one, loved one. So it, the, the man asked Jacob, uses the second form of the question. What is the meaning of your name? And Jacob said, Jacob, deceitful, untrustworthy, duplicitous man. He knew exactly who he was. Then the man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, 
one who has power with God is the meaning of that name. Because you have struggled with God and you won. You have struggled with God and you won. Jacob's defeat and his victory came at the same moment. He lost, but he won. That's the odd paradox in this story. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, I, and the word simply means the face of God, <clears throat> I have seen God face to face and I, I have been saved. Now there was a pagan belief that was rife in the ancient world. You find it in, in every pagan religion that if you ever happened to encounter God, you saw him face to face, you were toast. There, there was just no getting around it. That idea had even crept into Israel's thinking that if you saw God, you died. You shriveled up at that point. Jacob has a new insight. I have seen the face of God and he saved me. See? That's the point in these incarnations is he didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And when he finally came in the person of his son, he came in a little child about this long that nobody could be afraid of. He brought salvation through that infinite, infinitely small child. So he called the place Peniel because I've seen God and not only did I survive, but I've been saved. And then we're told that the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. It was a new day, a new beginning for Jacob. He was a new man. I read that for the first, I've read it a number of times, but this last week I read it. And I thought of the story of Judas in the upper room. It says that he went out and it was night. What an ominous note. This story tells us that Jacob went out and it was day. It was a new beginning for this man. But he was limping because of his hip. And, hip, and Jacob limped to the end of his days. At the very end of his life, when he was a very old man, and we're told that he blessed his sons, he did so leaning on the head of his staff. He had to carry a cane with him to the end of his days. Now, that's a very odd story. I think it's one of the strangest and yet most marvelous stories in the Old Testament. And it raises a lot of questions. The first question is, who was Jacob's opponent? Was it a man? Was it an angel? Was it God? All the above. It was a God-man. You know, all through the Old Testament, you have these, uh, this strange personage showing up who's called the angel of the Lord. Who is he? He's God incarnate in human flesh. Remember the promise given to Abraham when the stranger showed up at Abraham's tent? Three of them, actually. At first they were angels. Or pardon me, first they were men, and then they were angels. And then it was very clearly that one of them was God himself. So the angel of the Lord is the God-man coming to earth before Jesus, the ultimate God-man, came to earth. His, that was the final revelation of who God is. And all of this, again, is just, uh, it emphasizes the fact that God has a, has a great love for us and a great heart for us, and he wants to enter right into our lives and our experience. And as John puts it, tabernacle among us. Put his pup tent up in our midst. Now, what can I say of this chapter? Well, Jacob's ambivalence, sad to say, is characteristic of us. We have to put ourselves in his place and be honest with ourselves. 
Like Jacob, we want God, but we don't want him very much. We want God, but we want to make money at all costs, even at the cost of our family or our friends or our honor or our integrity. We want to be rich. We want God, but we want to maintain a shadow life, some hidden part of our life, some dark secret that only we know. No one else has access to it. We want God, but we want to cling to resentment and bitterness. Someone hurt us a long time ago, and we simply will not forgive. We want God, but we want to maintain a promiscuous lifestyle. I'm sure you know the name of Augustine or Augustine sometimes, as he's called, a fourth-century Christian. We have busts of Augustine. He was one handsome guy, brilliant, apparently very charismatic, a clever person. He was a teacher of rhetoric in the city of Milan. He was a Christian. But he had a mistress. Tells a story in his confessions. You can read it for yourself. Struggled with that. God kept speaking to him, didn't want to give her up, didn't want to give her up. And his prayer during that period was, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Make me pure, but, but wait until I'm as old as Roper is. You know. <laughs> Have one foot in the grave, then make me pure. See. Wanting, but not wanting. See, that's a terrible ambivalence that we... It's characteristic of us. Now, what about the wrestling? Well, the wrestling is the struggle that we have with God over that ambivalence. He keeps coming to grips with our duplicity. He won't let go. He's relentless in his love. There are nights and days when he wrestles with our conscience, and we experience terrible turmoil. We feel the guilt and the shame of what we're doing, and we struggle, and we will not let go. We want to hang on to God because we want his blessing. But we won't let go of the thing that we hold dearest. And then there is the crippling, that event that indeed breaks us, the tragedy, the exposure, the humiliation, the failure that brings an end to our ambivalence and leaves us clinging to God alone. Now, this is a difficult concept to talk about, and there's mystery here, and I can't possibly explain it. I, I believe fully in the providence of God that he controls everything and that everything that happens to us is, is screened through his heart and his love and his hands. Nothing comes to us that hasn't gone through heart, God's heart first. He is not the author of evil. Satan is the author of evil. But God can even use that and turn it into good, make it something wonderfully redemptive. I, uh, when Carolyn and I were very young in ministry, ran, we ran across a couple uh, who were going overseas with a missionary organization that we were somewhat involved with, uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And uh, we went to visit this couple. I've forgotten the occasion, but we walked into the room, and uh, there was a little baby lying on the sofa. And I wanted to say something about the child. I didn't know exactly what it said. Oh, beautiful child. The husband, the father, said, yeah, that's little Andrew. He's our Down syndrome baby. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't be sorry. 
He said, we called him Andrew because that's the thing that brought us back to Christ. We were living large and flying high. We had everything going for us. We had the good life. And along came Andrew and everything fell apart. And we realized that the one thing we did not have was God alone. Now, I do not believe for a minute that God causes Down syndrome, but he takes these evil things that Satan does and he screens them through his own will and his wisdom and his love and he uses them in various ways to break us so that we finally give up our resistance and we give in. It may be the death of a spouse. It may be the death of a dream. It may be that our businesses, through no fault of our own, fail. It may be that the bank forecloses on the home of our dreams. We lose our retirement funds. An, act, an accident or an illness impairs us. The affair that we've tried to keep secret becomes known, and the scandal ruins our reputation. Our spouse tells us they don't want to be married anymore. Or there's some other terrible loss. Or we simply grow old. There's nothing like growing old to break you. When your mind isn't as facile as it was before, your body is not as, as capable of doing things that you were doing before, and you finally realize that all the stuff that you spent your whole life acquiring is utterly worthless, and the only thing that matters is God himself. And we give up, and we give in, and we cling to God alone. Like the psalmist who bemoaned the fact that he didn't have the good life, but in a moment of insight... He said, I have God, and the nearness of God is my good. Now, what's with the naming? Uh, verse 28, he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. You wrestle with God, and he put you on the mat, and you won. God gave up. Or, excuse me, Jacob gave up. That's how you win over God. Jacob, we read, limped away from his encounter, halting on his thigh. His maiming marked him forever, but God did indeed bless him. He became the father of the nation of Israel. His sons in general became the heads of the various tribes of, of Israel, one of whom was Judah, the tribe through whom our Lord came and saved the world. So if you were to ask Jacob what, uh, what was the best day of his life, he'd say it's the day that he had a wrestling match with God, and he gave up, and he gave in. Now, I want to conclude <coughs> excuse me, by reading a short paragraph from a little booklet that I first read about 50 years ago. There's a Presbyterian pastor in, the, in California. His name is Robert Munger. Carolyn and I happen to know him. Uh, he sat down one day and just uh, wrote this little booklet out, up in a moment or two, and it now I think there's something like 15 million copies of this thing in circulation. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Many of you, I'm sure, have, have read it. Uh, Bob was reading Revelation 3.20 one day. Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I'll come in. So using that metaphor, uh, he penned this little book, My Heart, Christ's Home. And uh, it talks about the day that Jesus came and knocked on the door of his soul, and he invited him to come in. And he showed him the library and said, you can have my library, which is 
the, you know, the intake, the intellectual in, input, the things he reads, the things he thinks about, his imagination. You can have that, he said. And then he took me into the dining room and, and said, Lord, you can have my appetites, things that I desire, and the sensual part of my life. And uh, <clears throat> he took me into the living room, and that's where they would meet every morning. Some days Jesus would show up, and Bob wouldn't, but uh, Jesus was always there in, in the living room, ready, ready to chat, ready to hear what Bob had to say. Bob said, one day I found him waiting for me at the door. <clears throat> A strange look was in his eye. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in this house. Something must be dead. It's upstairs, I think. It's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few feet square. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. Certainly, I didn't want Jesus to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up to him, went up with him, and as we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door. <clears throat> I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this smell, you're mistaken. I'm going out on the porch. And then I saw him start down the stairs. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you will have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't got the strength to do it. Just give me the key, Jesus said. Christ comes to us and he asks, and what he wants is our whole heart. Not just a part or half of our heart, but he wants it all. And may I tell you that that is the key to joy, to true happiness, to blessedness, that sense of things being right and tranquility, and the power to have influence upon others, to be that sweet fragrance of Christ that we so much long for. We have to come to that place that we say, you can have it all. Not just a part of my life. Not just half my heart but all.